0: Today's episode is brought to you by Better Help. My mental health really began to suffer during COVID. At first, life seemed normal. I work from home anyway. But as the months passed, with no vacation, no friends to see, no change in routine, it was a bit like the walls were closing in. And one of the things that got me through that period was therapy. Talking to someone who could help change the patterns that led to distress was incredibly helpful. If there's something you need to get off your chest, then why not give BetterHelp a try? You can just fill out a brief questionnaire online, and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. You can arrange things to suit your schedule, and if you don't click with the person you're talking to, it's easy to switch to someone else. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Byzantium today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. .com/byzantium. Hello everyone, and welcome to the history of Byzantium, Episode 6: The Prosperous Exuberance. Last time, we looked at the middle decade of the Emperor Anastasius's time in power. Despite the continuous rioting of the Deems, the emperor was a popular figure, who managed to both beat back the Persians and run an efficient administration. However, in 511, the emperor finally provoked genuine outrage when he allowed his patriarch Timothy to tamper with church liturgy. The Emperor had kept his Monophysite beliefs to himself for many years, as he hoped that the compromise formula laid out in the Hanoticon would heal the rift between the Orthodox and the unorthodox. However, after twenty years on the throne, the two sides seemed as immovable as ever. The Monophysites continued to argue for the divine nature of Christ, while the Orthodox responded sternly that his human nature was just as important. Now in his early 80s, and perhaps showing his age, Anastasius seems to have thrown in his lot with his Monophysite friends. Despite the attempt to overthrow him in 512, the emperor continued to favour Monophysite clergy, promoting his friend Severus to the see of Antioch, where he made his low opinion of orthodox theology clear to all. The news of the emperor's decision spread, and aroused particular anger in the Balkans. The majority of the faithful in the western provinces were orthodox, and while the appointment of bishops may have passed them by, the news that the Trisagion had been edited did not. As I mentioned last time, the Trisagion was a constant refrain in Byzantine liturgy, stating, Holy God, Holy and Mighty, Holy and Immortal. To your average churchgoer in the Balkans, this was both a statement of faith and a statement of fact that every Sunday would be chanted aloud in worship. The news that the emperor was trying to tamper with the truth about God was both heresy and a call to arms. The man who sounded that call was Vitalian, a general who commanded federate troops, the equivalent of auxiliaries, mostly Bulgars in Thrace. Initially, news trickled into the capital that Vitalian was in a dispute with the master of soldiers, Hypatius, who he accused of withholding provisions from his men. Considering Anastasius' fiscal tightening, it sounds like a plausible complaint. However, the dispatches from the field then became more alarming, as two of Hypatius' chief officers wound up dead, and it became obvious that Vitalian was in revolt. Soon after this alarming development hit Anastasius's inbox, Hypatius himself arrived at the gates, announcing that Vitalian had won over the dukes of Lower Moesia to his cause, and was styling himself as the champion of orthodoxy. Vitalian was born in Zaldapa, in Lower Moesia, and first appears in the historical record in 503, accompanying his father on campaign against the Persians. Some of the histories refer to him as a Goth, but it's more likely that he had some Gothic ancestry while clearly being a fully Byzantine citizen. He is said to have been quite short and spoke with a stammer, but despite this less than impressive appearance, Vitalian was widely acknowledged as a brave soldier and a cunning leader. His PR campaign was certainly successful, as many Balkan peasants rallied to his cause, and at the head of nearly 50,000 men, he marched on Constantinople in the summer of 513. Of course, no hastily raised army was going to stand much chance of getting past the Theodosian walls, so the expedition functioned more like a demonstration against the emperor. Nevertheless, Anastasius took the situation seriously and set up bronze crosses over the gates of the city with inscriptions explaining his own view of the cause of the rebellion and implying strongly that Vitalian was more opportunist than crusader. Messengers sped back and forth between the two sides and Anastasius tried to diffuse the situation peacefully. Vitalian's senior officers were invited into the city and treated like honoured guests. They were each given gifts and were assured by the emperor that he would agree to convene an ecumenical council presided over by the pope. There was little Vitalian could do but agree to this offer. The staunchly orthodox pope would never side with the Monophysites, so the general could hardly tell his followers that they weren't getting what they wanted. However, he would also have known that there was no way back for him. Having raised the standard of revolt, he wasn't going to be welcomed back into imperial service. So Vitalian withdrew his army and returned to his base in Lower Moesia to contemplate his next move. Fortunately, he didn't have to wait long. As soon as the army was out of Thrace, Anastasia sent troops out under an officer named Cyril with instructions to capture the rogue general. Not for nothing, though, was Vitalian renowned for his cunning. He saw Cyril coming a mile off, ambushed his force, and killed him. On hearing the news, Anastasius dropped his conciliatory stance and had Vitalian named a public enemy. Gathering the praesental troops, he put together an army and gave the command to his nephew, who, slightly confusingly, was also called Hypatius. In the autumn of 513, the large imperial army headed out into Thrace and got the better of Vitalian's forces in an initial skirmish. However, Vitalian's army was stronger than expected and got the better of the next several encounters. Hypatius was driven east and penned in at the town of Acris on the Black Sea coast. It was there that the decisive battle took place as Hypatius created a barricade using his wagons near the rocky cliffs overlooking the sea. The Imperial soldiers found themselves outmatched by the Federate troops, including the mounted Bulgars, and were slaughtered, with many falling into ravines or being swept into the sea. One report says that more than 50,000 men died and Hypatius was taken prisoner. Even if the number of casualties was greatly exaggerated, it would still have been an alarming number. The whole of Moesia and Scythia was now in Vitalian's hands, and nothing stood between his army and Constantinople. The situation in the Balkans was bleak indeed for Anastasius, but it wasn't quite as bad as it might sound. The praecental armies were still in the capital, and of course the resources of the rest of the empire were still at his disposal. He was left to fret over the winter though, and early the next year yet more public disorder broke out in the capital. The Emperor had banned nocturnal feasts because of the disorder they caused. The reaction to this was violent and the prefect of the watch was killed as troops once more had to restore order. The riots were now a more serious consideration for the Emperor than earlier in his reign. Despite his victories Vitalian was unlikely to be able to take the capital without help from behind the walls. When spring arrived Vitalian marched on Constantinople, and Anastasius was forced to negotiate. He offered Vitalian the post of Master of the Soldiers in Thrace, and Hypatius was ransomed for a massive sum. This was a similar arrangement that Zeno had had to contend with when Theodoric's Gothic army had been camped in Thrace. Another condition of the truce was that the promised ecumenical council should take place. However, negotiations with the Pope proved fruitless. Pope Hormisdas in Rome refused to change his position that Patriarch Acacius's memory should be damned. Acacius was Zeno's patriarch, the one who helped formulate the hernoticon. When Vitalian realized that nothing would come of the promises made to him, he marched back to the gates once more. It was autumn 515, and he decided to occupy the one part of Constantinople that wasn't protected by the Theodosian Walls, Sikai. Sikai was just over the waters of the Golden Horn, but was still a suburb of the city. Over the next few podcasts, I will take a look around Constantinople and explore its geography in greater detail. For now, though, all you need to know is that although Vitalian's forces would still need help from inside the city to achieve their aims, their presence so close to the heart of the capital was threatening enough. Both the commanders of the Precental armies were friends of Vitalian and his father, and so Anastasius gave command of the armed forces to Marinus, the former finance minister. Vitalian had seized some ships, which he hoped might ferry him across the water, but the Imperial fleet was quickly on the scene and destroyed them. Apparently the fleet was already testing a compound, which would later develop into the infamous Greek fire. Marinus then led the Imperial forces to Sikai, where they emerged victorious. Vitalian managed to escape back to the Balkans, but the majority of his support was gone, and he no longer presented an immediate danger. Anastasius prudently decided that now was the time for a pay increase to ensure the loyalty of the army, and so he converted the quinquennial donative into an annual supplement to the soldier's allowance. Although the rebellion of Vitalian had been a serious challenge to the emperor's authority, no further uprising occurred in the capital in support of the usurper. Many in the empire were still loyal to their elderly leader, who in the same year became a widower when Ariadne died. The daughter of Leo and the wife of both Zeno and Anastasius was mourned in the capital. The emperor was in the final years of his reign. The only major event of note was another invasion by the Bulgars in 517. They came in force into Macedonia and Thessaly, some of them reaching as far south as Thermopylae. The man who stopped them was a young officer named Germanus, the nephew of a certain Justin, who at this point was head of Anastasius's palace guard, the Excubators. Germanus defeated the Bulgars decisively enough that they left the Balkans in peace for a decade. Vitalian was still at large, though, and given his links with the Bulgars, the emperor couldn't be entirely confident in the security of his western provinces. A year later, though, it was no longer the emperor's concern. On the night of the 9th of July, 518, at the age of 87 or 88, Anastasius finally died. He had ruled for an extraordinary 27 years. My rough calculations make him the fifth longest reigning emperor at this point, behind Augustus, Constantine, Honorius and Theodosius II. What makes this so unusual, though, is that he was already in his 60s when he was raised to the purple. As we've seen, Anastasius was a good emperor. He was fortunate to come to power when the conflicts with Huns, Goths and Germans had finally dissipated, and that gave him the chance to reform the empire's finances and concentrate on good government. However, the emperor struggled with the issue that would plague all his successors. Zeno had tried to find a compromise with the Monophysites, while Anastasius had ended up embracing them. Justin would come to power promising to get rid of them for good, but none of these solutions would stick. The Monophysite issue notwithstanding, Anastasius was the first emperor since Diocletian to leave no serious financial, military or political problems behind him, a record which really is pretty impressive. Of course, the emperor had left no obvious successor, something which could have caused major issues if Justin hadn't stepped so conveniently into the breach. As I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Anastasius is best known today for what he left behind when he died. According to the historian Procopius, what he left was £320,000 of gold sitting in the imperial treasury. That's more than three times the amount left by Marcion in 457. Ancient figures are notoriously unreliable, of course, but Procopius also gives us the figure of 130,000 pounds of gold as the cost of Leo's expedition against the Vandals, which is an interesting point of comparison. Considering what Justin and Justinian will be able to achieve in the years that follow, we can be in no doubt that Anastasius saved well. We can also be pretty confident in saying that the Byzantine Empire was in a state of economic growth. The massive treasure reserve wasn't created just by a few more tax cuts and a few less banquets. No, it seems that for the first time since the crisis of the 3rd century, the Empire of the Romans was enjoying a period of peace, prosperity and population growth. You may recall that back in the mid-2nd century, the Romans suffered from the Antonine Plague, which brought great depopulation, and a century later the Cyprian Plague arrived smack dab in the middle of the crisis of the 3rd century. These two plague cycles that modern historians guess were measles and smallpox had knocked the population of the Roman world back, with obvious results. Less farmers in the field... Less fields brought under cultivation, less food to sell, less money made, less tax paid. By the early 5th century, the population had stabilized and begun to grow again. Cultural factors would have aided this. Rural slaves, whose birth rates had always been low, had dwindled to a small fraction of the population. In their place were mostly Christian peasants, who were encouraged by the church to get married and have children. The church also frowned on infanticide and abortion, so larger families resulted in some areas, and with plenty of land available, the growth continued for a century. We see ample evidence for this in the reign of Anastasius, with increases in state revenues and recruited soldiers. Archaeological evidence suggests that there was a growth in the building of houses and churches and in the import of luxury goods. The point of all this is to explain that, for all his wisdom, Anastasius was no financial genius. The wealth of the empire was slowly returning after centuries when, even if the population was growing, there were invasions and rebellions poaching most young men to go and fight. Anastasius inherited a recovering economy and helped set it up for future success. As we've also seen, thanks to the hard work of Leo and Zeno, Anastasius also inherited an office that had been restored The emperors had struggled for control with their ministers and generals and federate troops during the 5th century The loss of the west had been a trauma that many feared would be coming to the east soon Instead the emperors fought back And after the successful conclusion of the Isaurian War Anastasius was able to stand alone and shape imperial policy the way he wanted it to be For those reading ahead, you can see the significance of this recovery. Justinian will be emperor within a decade and begin the reconquest of the West an attempt to restore the Roman Empire in ways that just hadn't been possible for a long time. Clearly, this is a good point to stop the narrative and take a look around. We need to fully assess the Mediterranean world before we can see how Justinian will try to change it. Before we do, though, there is one lingering question about Anastasius' reign. If the emperor was so popular, and everyone was getting richer, why were there so many riots? The answer suggested by historian Warren Treadgold is that the economic growth helped cause this social unrest. The empire's major cities had groups of young men with leisure time to devote to sports, shows, carousing, and crime. There was money around to spend and to extort. The idle rich wanted excitement. The idle poor wanted a share in the wealth they saw around them. Treadgold claims that the riots seem to show prosperous exuberance rather than impoverished desperation. He may be right. Clearly the increased political and social role of the Deems had a lot to do with it and the fact that these restless young men no longer had public careers to tend to may also explain the attraction of such gangs. These are questions I hope to address with more detail over the next few episodes. I want to look at how society has changed since the last time the history of Rome took a look around during the age of the Antonines. I'm not yet sure of the order I'm going to go in, or how many episodes this walking tour will take, but we will definitely begin in two weeks' time and start with the former Roman lands in the west. We will take a glance at what has become of them since they slipped from imperial control and then move east to look at the other neighbours of the empire. As ever, I'd like to say a huge thank you to all of you leaving feedback on Facebook, iTunes or at thehistoryofbyzantium.wordpress.com If you know anyone who enjoyed the history of Rome... Let them know about the history of Byzantium.